The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. We are getting into the holiday season. So much good times to be had by all. I love this time of year because we're all coming together. We're all slacking off work just a little bit, knowing that the end of the year is coming, particularly those of us in the entertainment industry, because around December 15th or so, the whole industry starts to shut down. Although some of my clients are still bringing in a lot of projects out the door, and I'm grateful for that. But one entertainment organization that is not slowing down in this holiday is this particular program that is still here still making episodes for you and we're going to be finishing out the year strong producer lauren how are you doing i'm doing great ryan how are you i love the holiday get up sis you are just bringing the holiday spirit whereas like i'm super grinchy over here i got no dress up of any kind i could not be bothered but you're dressing up enough for both of us i I know and you were like i have to get some coffee before the show and i was like coffee it's hot chocolate season (laughs) that does look is that whipped cream in your hot chocolate yes Mm. i mean so that that looks delicious. I mean, I'm sure it is delicious, but it also like looks great aesthetically for the camera because you have the hot chocolate, you know, up to the top. And then like the whipped cream is protruding at least, I'd say, a good three inches above the top of your glass. It goes down as I sip, though. You yeah. Know. Oh, yes. Certainly by the end of this segment. Uh, you will not be seeing the whipped cream anymore. Roughly around the time we'll be interviewing our guest later in the show, we're going to be joined by Janice Palazzotto, the interim CEO of Music Will. We've had so much fun interviewing the folks at Music Will recently, and so we wanted to have somebody else on from their organization. Great organization, making great improvements to music education. And Janice is an accomplished social entrepreneur. She's going to have lots of great advice for the indie creators out there. Excited to speak with her later in the show that's going to be a great guest we got great guests coming up for the rest of the year next week we're going to be chatting with a really terrific entrepreneur jaquel horton forbes 30 under 30 selected entrepreneur she's the founder and ceo of fave a really cool fan engagement social platform we got it's gonna be great we're finishing out 2023 with a bang wouldn't have it any other way i i feel a little bad lauren that i am not showing the Christmas spirit in my garb right now because I'm loving the holiday season because I actually got my first Christmas present already and I wanted to share with the viewers and listeners because I think it's kind of a gift for all of us. Okay. Friend of the podcast and co-host of the podcast on many occasions, Elisa Rockdock and her dear husband, Evan, who's been on the show quite a few times, got me a really delightful gift. And I wanted to share it with everybody. So first of all, I want to, before I bring out that gift, I of course want to talk about 
my book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry, sort of a modern take on the how-to guides in the music business. And I'm not holding this up because I'm trying to get you to buy it, even though it does make a lovely Christmas gift. But I'm thinking about this book because Evan and Elisa, as a Christmas present, gave me in what is in many ways the predecessor of that book. Okay. The, this tome right here, Whoa. This Business of Music, A Practical Guide to the Music Industry for Publishers, Writers, Record Companies, Producers, Artists, Agents. Now, that is the a title of the book. Yeah, this is a great book. I have a copy. I had a copy of this before I got this copy. I, I had to read it in college, as do many college students who took a class in the music business. This is kind of the seminal tome of the industry. What makes this particular version of the book awesome is its copyright date. This book was made, this edition was from 1977. Wow. Yeah. Oh, oh, what? Damn near 50 year old book. You can only imagine. So they knew I'd be excited about this because they you knew they knew that I would just just eagerly want to dig into this book and just look at how much the industry has changed in the last 50 years. Like, how are we talking about the music industry in 1977? Pre Spotify, pre Internet, pre Napster. Pre any of the things that we know about in today's modern music industry, back when the music industry was just not even CDs, right? Selling oh LP God. vinyl records and you buy them in stores. And that was the game back then. Yeah. And so I was I was pretty excited to dig into this book and just kind of find some things that I was like, wow, that's a that's an interesting twist on the industry. Uh, I, I got a couple passages I want to read here that made me laugh. Uh, the first is right from the beginning of the book, right on page one. I just want to read uh, about read to you the artists that they reference in this book. All right. So this is the very first sentence from the very first chapter of this business of music, 1977. <laughs> you were looking for bangers and you got as far as page I, I one. know I didn't ha- I didn't have to look more than one <laughs> sentence before I found a banger. Here we go. Okay. Chapter one. Becoming a recording star is the na- is the aim of many attractive youngsters. Must be they attractive. are desirous of the fame and fortune of a Glenn Campbell, Bob Dylan, <laughs> Paul Anka, Stevie Wonder, or John Denver. I knew more than half of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just so funny that like there was a time. When people didn't think of Paul Anka as like, oh, that really old guy. <laughs> like, he, <laughs> like back when he was the Harry Styles of his time. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I know who that is. Yeah. Well, you know, just, I mean, just, you know, just think, like, close your eyes and imagine that, what yeah. you think somebody named Paul Anka would look like <laughs> and sound like, and you'd be right. Um, the other thing that I thought was funny about the book is uh, the use of its classic of the classic like 1970s overly gendered language. Oh, so they they refer to A and R yeah, a lot of he's instead of just saying like, you know, they or he or she. But uh they multiple times in the book they refer to the folks who work in and record companies A and R department as quote A and R men. Oh. <laughs> because people who obviously, you know, to be able to identify and develop artists in a record company, that's a man's job. No woman could possibly do that. Um, and obviously, it's 2023. So, How many of the examples of successful artists were women there? 
like the people you oh, aspire in, to in be. In that first page? None of them. I'm just like Glenn like, Campbell, Paul, that. Bob Dylan, Paul Anka, <laughs> Stevie Wonder, John Denver. Yeah, none of their examples were of women. For women. But because nobody wants to be even back then uh, what a woman was in the industry. <laughs> yeah. It, in oh, 2023, we don't refer to A and R professionals men. as A and R men. In 2023, of course, we don't refer to A and R professionals at all because we don't really do A and R in 2023 anymore. At least record labels don't. Um, the other thing I thought was cool, and this is more of a visual gag than anything else, was oh. this handy chart on how record distribution works. Let me see if I can <gasps> lift this heavy tome oh. and place this in front of the camera. So if you see here, it's got like, you know, the record company and then music stores and rack jobbers. Yeah, look, Google what a rack jobber is, which is funny because like in 2023, this chart is just internet. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Streaming services and that's it. And like, but back then it was like this massive web of supply chains and retail and oh God, it's, I mean, but what surprises me most about this book, Lauren, is not all of the things that are different, but how much of it is the same in as much as like the same stupid terms that I, that I see in record deals today that don't make any sense. They still existed back in 1977, which means like we're still using a lot of the old industry terms, old industry uh, conventions and terminology that do, do not make sense today. And we still used them back in 1977. So I think perhaps the most shocking thing about this book is how much of it is still in use because of how slow the industry is to change uh, to changes in technology and changes in culture. Yeah, I'm that's incredible to think about and at the same time even the dogs upset i know my dogs are you guys can't hear it half the time but somebody's walking something outside <laughs> <laughs> and now i've lost it um yeah that's i'm sorry all i can hear right now is because I have a chorus, a choir behind me. Oh, they're Christmas caroling for you. I'm gonna they're go with going. that. We're just gonna let, we're just gonna let them keep going. So I'm yeah, I thought that was cool. Uh, much <laughs> thanks to Evan and Elisa for this wonderful, wonderful gift. The 1977 edition of this business of music. Are they in town? They were in town. They just left. Got to hang with them for a bit. She did not say with me. Okay, sorry. But for the folks who are Evan and oh, Elisa fans, they'll be happy to know that starting in 2024, when we move our show to Thursdays, Elisa Rockdoc's going to be joining us regularly again. Yay! So we're all pretty stoked about that. I really enjoy having her perspective on the show. She brings in great insights as a musician, as a gaming industry professional, as somebody with a literal PhD in pop culture, as I love to bring up on a regular basis. Excited That's to have amazing. her joining us again in 2024 and excited that she gave me this awesome book. Yeah. And that, you know, so much has changed in yes. all of that time. We've That's made so right. much progress. So much has changed yet so much has stayed the same. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Lauren, we are in the midst of the holiday season. And I've and and even though my clothes don't show it right now cuz I'm dressed the way I'm always dressed, make no mistake, I am in the holiday spirit, producer Lauren, but the holiday that I'm in the spirit of is not Christmas or Hanukkah or any of the other holidays that we might typically celebrate 
at the this time of year. Instead, this the holiday that is filling my heart with love and happiness is January 1st, 2024, otherwise known to us copyright lawyers as Public Domain Day. Hey, happy Public Domain Day, everybody. It's right around the corner. Sorry, I just read our ticker. There you go. So let me explain why us copyright lawyers get so giddy about January 1st of every year. So, as you might know, in the United States, as in most industrialized countries, copyrights are not a permanent right. You only have a copyright for a limited amount of time, and then once that time is up, the work goes into what's called the public domain, which means that work now belongs to everyone. We can all use the work for anything that we want. We can create new works from that work, work, and that's really important because... The public domain is perhaps the greatest wellspring of American artistic creativity. So many of the Disney movies that you grew up loving came from public domain adaptations of old fairy tales and old works. Uh, some of the modern interpretations of Shakespeare are brought to us by the public domain and the fact that all of Shakespeare's works are in there now. So public domain is a great thing for creativity. And so what happens is every year... All of the works that were created 95 years before now enter the public domain on January 1st. So they don't enter 95 years from the day that they were made. They are they are uh, and they all come in at once on January 1st. Okay. And so a lot of really cool works from 1928 are about to enter the public domain. One of which that everybody is celebrating, which is really making this public domain day particularly special is the fact that on January 1st, 2024, one Mickey Mouse will be entering the public domain. That mouse will belong to all of us. Now, they had a suit about that, right? They had a suit about that? Like, weren't they trying to extend it even though they weren't? Oh, they weren't trying to extend it. They (laughs) did extend it. Oh, okay. Well, so... Yeah, this is, yeah, you're asking the right questions, though. Um, Let's definitely talk about this. So, on January 1st, 2024, the the Mickey Mouse that was depicted in the 1928 black and white Disney cartoon Steamboat Willie will enter the public domain. So, that means that that version of Mickey Mouse, right, the ratty-looking one, will will belong to everybody. The more modern version of Mickey Mouse that you probably... think of with like the red overalls and the gold buttons and everything that one's still very much under copyright so don't start making modern mickey mouse cartoons unless you want to get sued (laughs) but the old steamboat willie mickey mouse he's all yours starting on january 1st 2024 now as you noted lauren this day is actually 20 years later than it probably should have been because had the law stayed the way it would have been say Back when this old book was made in 1977, the original expiration date for Mickey Mouse was supposed to be back in 2004. But what happened was in the late 90s, Disney and all the other big media companies lobbied Congress super hard in 1998 to pass what was called the Copyright Term Extension Act, which took all of those works that were about to enter the public domain and gave all of them an extra 20 years of copyright All of them. Everything. So everything made before 1976 
got an extra 20 years retroactive. And so Mickey Mouse and you know people call it the Mickey Mouse Act, right? Because it was Disney trying to protect the mouse for another 20 years and it worked. And so we've all been waiting. All of us public domain advocate copyright lawyers have been waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, the day is here. Mickey Mouse will finally belong to us uh, and writing this 20 year injustice. Also joining Mickey will be Tigger from the Winnie the Pooh universe. Uh, we got Winnie you, the Pooh last year, right? That's well, Minnie, Winnie the Pooh entered the public domain two years ago. Two years, and ago. will now be joined by his friend Tigger. Yay! Uh, and and I think every year we're going to get more and more folks from the Hundred Acre Wood uh, joining us. And so, yeah. Now remember, that's not the modern Tigger that you see in cartoons. You have to go all the way back to the original-looking Tigger from the A.A. A. Milne cartoons. That's the one that's going into the public domain. But it's th- pretty okay? exciting. So like that's like, so so Mickey Mouse the image of the original Steamboat Willie black and white Mickey Mouse is now in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Is like the name Mickey Mouse fair game now or is that different like you're saying I can't have the old Tigger but I can I can have the old Tigger but I can't have the newer Tigger but like can I create a Tigger of my own that also happens to be a uh, tiger that jumps around or whatever. You, like, no, you you can use the tigger, character name Tigger. Okay. Like, and I can use Mickey and, Mouse. And you can use I the can character make name. My own Mickey Mouse. It, you know, and I preface all of this by saying <laughs> this is not legal advice. And go talk to a lawyer before you do something crazy with Mickey Mouse. But, but if we're talking about the original Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse, the one I'm that now about belongs word, to word, not an image. Well, like, no, you, I mean, like the character name is part of the character. Okay. They can't stop you from using the character name in an artistic work. Mm. Whatever you want to do with that Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse is all yours. You want to create new Steamboat Willie adventures? You're all set. You want to put Steamboat Willie in a porno film? That's okay. And you don't even have to change the title because Steamboat Willie is already a pretty good title for a porno film. Oh, we went there. (laughs) It belongs to everybody. You can do it now. Now, now, uh, Disney, of course, has been dreading this day. Yeah. Right. Much is the same way as like the A.A. A. Milne estate dreaded the day that Winnie the Pooh entered the public domain, because then we got that horrific Winnie the Pooh and Piglet slasher movie that came out that we talk about on the show all the time. Yeah. And so, you know, we're going to get those, too. Right. Like it's we're now going to start to see some like really scary Mickey Mouse horror movies because people are sick. But uh, Mick, you know, Disney, of course, who is dreading this is already like out on its full PR front reminding people that like the modern Mickey Mouse is still under copyright. This is a a statement put out by Disney, quote, more modern versions of Mickey will remain unaffected by the expiration of the Steamboat Willie copyright. And Mickey will continue to play a leading role as a global ambassador for the Walt Disney Company in our storytelling, theme park attractions, and merchandise, the statement said. So... Like Disney's like, up on be careful. Room. You get you get anywhere near the Mickey that we're still making money on, we're gonna sue the crap out of you. But like even the Mickey Mouse ears concept and like all the stuff that they kind of make that's based off of three circles, um, that kind of stuff is fair game ish. Well, that, I mean, it, it depends. So like, there's going to be a lot of court cases that we're going to see over the next few years. Disney lawyers figure- are going to be busy. Right. Yeah. Lawyers are going to be busy trying to make sense of like, 
what is public domain Mickey Mouse versus what is still copyright protected Mickey Mouse. And further complicating all of this is how trademark law comes into play. Because even though Steamboat Willie can now be put into like new works that you create as an artist, you are still significantly limited in the extent that you can use Mickey Mouse as a trademark to sell products, right? Because Disney company still owns trademarks in the Mickey Mouse ears. And in fact, Steamboat Willie is actually a trademark for the Walt Disney animation brand. If you ever watch a Walt Disney animation cartoon, the first thing you see before the movie even starts is Mickey Mouse spinning the little captain's wheel in the Steamboat Willie cartoon. And it says Walt Disney animation. That's a trademark. So, you can't use Steamboat Willie as a trademark. You can't use Steamboat Willie as your as a logo for your own animation company, for example. Mm, okay. And you better believe that Disney has about a billion co- trademarks for the Mickey Mouse ears on a wide range of products. So okay, okay. you do want to be careful about how you use Mickey in the product and trademark world. But in terms of artistic stuff, like making cartoons... He can make and, an appearance in your film. He just can't right. be the just, brand for you. Just your don't... Film. You nailed it. Right. He can be in your movie, but he cannot be your brand in most goods and services classes. But, you know, it it, it is an exciting uh, it's an exciting development, though. And it does underscore a really important point about copyright law that is worth repeating. OK, as much as Disney is not happy as about public domain day, as say I am, <laughs> Disney needs to understand that this is how things work. Disney built its empire from raiding the public domain, Cinderella, uh, Sleeping Beauty, Little Mermaid, right? These were all old public domain fairy tales that they adapted into movies. So they got to make those movies and they made a lot of money off them. And now it's time for them to pay it forward to the next generation so that the future generations of artists can use their work from the public domain to make cool new stuff. And also probably some weird horror films involving Mickey Mouse. (laughs) And we're just going to have to deal with that as a weird byproduct of our public domain system. Oh, poor Steamboat. Exactly. Poor Steamboat Willie. Yeah, he's about to get, Steamboat Willie's about to go through some stuff in the next Poor few guy. years. I feel yeah. very bad for that uh, weird black and white mouse. <laughs> now, here's the, the last development that I think is worth looking into in all of this is uh-huh. a lot of people were sure back when the old Copyright Extension Act was passed in 1998 and everybody said, OK, fine, now we're going to wait until 2024 for Mickey Mouse to go into the public domain. There were a lot of lawyers and other experts who were saying, He's not going into the public domain in 2024. They were skeptical. Like they're going to lobby Congress again. Like the closer we get to 2024, they're going to come back to Congress and add another 20 years and save Mickey again for another two decades. And so a lot of people are wondering, well, why didn't that happen? Why did Disney, you know, have to lay down their sword and let this beloved icon of theirs belong to the world again? And I think the answer is, if I had to give my guess as to why we're allowing this to happen now, we're allowing Mickey Mouse to go into the public domain, is because there is a new corporate power that is fighting for the opposite of what Disney wants, right? So when Disney when Disney passed helped pass the Copyright Term Extension Act, it was because big media wanted it to happen. And big media was a powerful force back then. But now in 2024, there's an even bigger force than big media, big tech, that does not want this to happen, right? You think of a company like Amazon. 
and how much money they make off of people publishing fan fiction on their website. Yeah. You think of a company like Google that is developing AI technology and all these things that want to use existing copyrighted and public domain works to build their technology, right? There are just as many forces in business today that have an interest in the public domain happening as there are media companies that don't want a public domain. And I think this time around, big tech won. And now we all get Steamboat Willie. Wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> I don't like thinking about big bad powers taking over everything, but but yeah, it is really like <laughs> you know it, it's funny, right? Because you know you want to be able to think, oh, the reason why Mickey Mouse is entering the public domain is because Congress is doing the right thing. You know they they want to help the little guy. It's nope, nope. There's just a different corporate power that wants the Somebody opposite. Somebody bigger. Yeah, yeah, that's well, you know, what are you gonna do? That's America. One more piece of copyright news before we go to break and talk okay. to uh, Janice Palazzotto, because I think this is an interesting one. Another another interesting uh, copyright story. The This is from the BBC. The estate of J.R.R. Tolkien has sued a fan fiction writer for publishing an unofficial sequel to The Lord of the Rings. This is in 2022. Uh, we'll go back to the go back to the beginning of the story. Back in 2022, U.S. author Demetrius Polycron. I really hope that's his birth name. Because that's an amazing name. Demetrius Polychron published an unauthorized work, an unauthorized sequel to Lord of the Rings called The Fellowship of the King. Now, something you all need to know about copyright law is one of the things that you have when you own a copyright in a work is you have what's called the derivative work right, which means not only do you have the exclusive rights over your work, but you also have the exclusive right to make works based on your work. So if you write a novel, for example, nobody else is allowed to make a sequel to your novel without your permission. Nobody is allowed to adapt your novel into a movie without your permission. So when the amazingly named Demetrius Polycron made this Lord of the Rings sequel, he was uh, you know, allegedly violating uh, the, the Tolkien's estate's copyright. So the, the, ne the next part of this is pretty wild. So as you know, you know if you're if you're following the the Lord of the Rings uh, pop culture these days, Amazon recently put out a new TV series called Rings of Power, which is based on the Lord of the Rings universe. Obviously, Amazon did all the licensing that they need to do to be able to create this Lord of the Rings TV series. Right. But in a puzzling move, Demetrius Polychron sues Amazon and the Tolkien estate in 2022, alleging that. Their Rings of Power TV show infringed on his sequel that he wrote earlier in the year. It's like, hey, you stole the thing that I stole from you. I'm suing you. Yeah, like call attention to the thing yeah. you just did. Thanks. Good job. Yeah, not a smart <laughs> idea. Don't call attention to it. And so, yeah, the, the Tolkien estate said, oh, we didn't know that you made a sequel. Now we do. Thanks for letting us know. And then they sued. Now, sued. Uh, now yeah. they sued him. And of course, the the Tolkien estate won because you you, know, uh, you can't make a sequel without somebody's permission. And uh, and so this wine this you know the court recently held that uh, Polychron's work you know he has to uh, he has to obey an injunction. He's not allowed to sell his book anymore. He's not allowed to make any more sequels of this Lord of the Rings book. But, you know, I think 
the more the the broader lesson in this is one: make sure you respect the derivative work rights of other creators, fan fiction writers. I know y'all are out there, and you're all making really cool stuff. Make sure that when you make fan fiction adaptations of the works that you love, make sure that the copyright holders have put out statements saying that they approve these works, that they're okay with you making these works because unauthorized fan fiction is copyright infringement. And depending on whether the copyright holders are down with it or not, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble as our amazingly named friend Demetrius Polycron did. Which you can, yeah, you can put a lot of work into something that never gets to uh, get the return you had hoped because of that as well. Like, sometimes all they'll tell you is to stop doing it. But if you put in two years worth of work developing something that you're not allowed to release, uh, that's wasted time on your part, too. So yeah. coming from somebody who had to deal with the uh, Tolkien estate and Middle Earth Enterprises and all of those people in uh, in getting rights to something they didn't get rights for before they started. Well, I mean, I, I <laughs> what I would give. I wonder if we can get him onto the show. I need to talk to Demetrius Polycron. Oh, him. I want to know what was going through his head. Yeah. When he's turning on Amazon, watching the Rings of Power and going, hey, that's pretty similar to my story. And thinking that he could possibly sue the original copyright holders for copyright infringement of their own rights. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. I wish I was that bold about anything. I, I would anything. kill for that kind of confidence. Well, yeah, though, would you? Because, like, when <laughs> it's it to your own trouble. detriment. Right. Like, it wasn't like, you know what? I have ground to stand on here. It was like, I'm mad. And what I'm going to do is so reckless that it's going to bring back all of the pain on me. Like, that was just not the smartest move. It was not thought through so much. I'm curious. Can we look this up right now? When was the original Lord of the Rings published? Is that know. about to enter into the public like domain? A years ago. Wasn't it a long time ago? But oh, not it's... like the new movies. The Lord of the Rings, the original Lord of the Rings trilogy will become public domain on January 1st, 2044. And what? Oh, a... it's like 2044. No, 20 that's, years that's, from now. That's, that's coming right up. 20 years from now. We'll still be on the air. And we'll be celebrating when... Uh, when Oh my God, what a glorious day that will be 20 years from now. Imagine the fan fiction that will spawn forth when uh, Lord of the Rings enters the public domain in 2044. I already can't wait. I just had this image of Charlie trying to do his show, like trying to do the one man Lord of the Rings. You should probably explain who Charlie is for the people who aren't you and me who don't know who he is. They don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Like, yeah. Sorry, Charlie uh, does the one-man Lord of the Rings as well as one-man Star Wars and one-man Dark Knight and one-man Pride and Prejudice, because why not? Because why not? not? But yeah, I just, I'm trying to, because I've been with that show for more than a dozen years now and just the image of like 20 years from now, him trying to like get around on the stage, like his walker (laughs) and roll around, like I don't know. Sorry, the rest of you didn't catch on to that, but what was going on in my head was not pretty. All right, let's take a break. We got Janice Palazzotto coming up next. Excited to talk to her. Don't go anywhere. Keep checking out Break the Business. We're back in two. Ryan Corella here. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program. And I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. 
If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Break the Business, everybody. Ryan Corella here with producer Lauren. How is your hot chocolate doing, Lauren? Is, uh, are it's we still delicious. Up? There's still a little bit left. I'm trying to slowly sip now. Mm. We got to savor. We got about 20, 20, 25 minutes left in the show. You got to... I have to shift to water. <laughs> oh, my God. You know what I want to make for Christmas this year? Maybe you and I can uh, team up on this. And okay. since we're from Miami, right... Uh, there are certain Christmas delicacies in the beverage world that are, you know, pretty terrific down here. And I think we might want to try our hand at making some Coquito. Uh, oh, yeah. This, yeah. Uh, I get know. bottles of it every year, but I've never attempted to make it. I mean, how hard can it be? I mean, probably pretty hard for a couple gringos like us. But, um, you know, let's follow a recipe. But I, I love the idea of, like, you know, eggnog that gets us drunk and, you know, Coquito delivers that. It's delicious. Yeah, it's so, so good. Or we just need to find some of our uh, our Cuban friends here who can uh, send us more of those bottles. I'll get a bottle for sure. There we go. <laughs> Let's go ahead and bring out our guest this week. She is an acclaimed social entrepreneur in the entertainment industry with over 25 years of experience in the public and private sectors. She currently serves as the interim CEO of the music education nonprofit Music Will and is a sought-after voice on the subject of music education. You can find out more about our guest's work by visiting musicwill.org. We are happy to welcome Janice Palazzotto on to Break the Business. Hello, Janice. Hello. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you as well. Uh, I assume by happy holidays, you're also referring to public domain day, which we are including a part of the holiday season. Best yeah, holiday. it was great. It was great listening in on that conversation. I, I had no idea public domain day was coming up. Well, you know, it, it, it sneaks up on us every year, but we're always happy to celebrate it with, uh, with our loved ones. I, I, I'm a big fan of Music Will, Janice. I, you know, we had Dave Wish, the founder of Music yeah. Will, on the show a couple months ago. He was terrific. He shared this really uh, information about this really amazing organization. And so we're eager to talk to more people that are involved in this organization that are helping improve music education and rich music within our young communities here in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about your role in the organization as interim CEO? Sure. Um First, thank you for having me on the show. It's, it's great to be on. Uh, I have been with Music Will for about six and a half years now. 
Wow. Um, I started out, and actually my backstory with Dave Wish and Music World goes back to 2010. Um, I was actually on the other side of the table. I was working for CBS at the time, looking for a national music education nonprofit. We had an ad partner who was interested in supporting the, that issue. And uh, I was referred to Dave. We met up in New York. Uh, and as you probably saw when you spoke to him a couple months ago, the passion and the charisma and everything about him is so unreal that we became um, partners right away. And so I actually got to know the organization as a funder. We were able to provide funding to the organization and I got to know uh, Music Will back then known as Little Kids Rock um, from that perspective. So I joined the organization in 2017 as their chief development officer, whereas I've been responsible for revenue generation. And um, late last year, uh, Dave and the board, they'd been talking about, uh, you know, evolving Dave's role. He founded this incredible organization 20 plus years ago. Um, it's remarkable what he's been able to do. You know, as you know, he started out as first grade elementary school teacher and took this concept of um, teaching kids how to pay, play popular music in, into what it's become today. So he and the, he decided it was time to evolve his role. He stepped down as chief uh, executive officer, went on a well-deserved sabbatical um, January 1st. And that's when the board um, asked me if I would step in as the interim CEO, uh, which I've been doing since. Um, Dave came back on July 1st. And so we're continuing to work together and, and make magical mischief together so that we can keep bringing <laughs> the, the power of music uh, to more kids and more schools across the country. You're a great fit in that role because you're a longtime music education advocate and you also bring in that private sector experience. But going all the way back to sort of the beginning of your journey in music education, uh, I've heard you say in the past that your your own particular experience with music education growing up was, shall we say, less than ideal, particularly having to learn classical guitar. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like and maybe how it's informed the work you do now in music education with Music Will? Absolutely. So I think I was in maybe middle school years. Um, my mom suggested I learn guitar. So she found me a, a great instructor. Um, but, you know, learning classical guitar and, and, and I wasn't a really great math student. I wasn't actually <laughs> a really great student. <laughs> so to learn how to read notation and to learn how to play classical guitar wasn't tops on my list it was i was i wasn't a very good student of, of the lessons um and it wasn't that fun for me because it, it was just i had more fun when i was with my girl scout troop sitting by the campfire strumming our guitars and then i think at the time out of maybe 15 or 16 of us in the troop 10 of us played guitar Oh, wow. um, and so by strumming chords and, and playing campfire songs was so much more fun and, and interesting to me rather than learning classical. Now, I will say that the very last song I learned um, was Stairway to Heaven, which was a great song to learn because it was a song that I knew versus songs that I'd never heard of. 
And I, I really wish that I'd had a program like the Music Will program back in the day. Um, I'd probably still be playing music. Because that program, Music Will, for, for the viewers and listeners, emphasizes trying to cultivate music education programs for young people that are more about popular music, right? The kind of music that kids are listening to. I think a lot of traditional music education programs focus more on like classical, traditional music, music you might find in the public domain today. And Music Will is all about, let's get modern instruments in there. Let's get pop songs in there because that's going to be the stuff that lights kids up and gets them excited, not just about music education, but school in general, right? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, we have found, I mean, just that. And the, and the concept is so simple. It's like put a guitar or a keyboard or, or any kind of instrument in the, hand of a, in the hands of a child, teach them one chord or two chords. And by doing that, it opens up a catalog of hundreds and hundreds of popular songs that they can, they can learn. So kids are being, they're engaging right away. And that's part of the, the approach. It's, you know, they'll learn about notation and, and scale down the road, but let's just get the instruments in their hands, teach them that they can play a slew of songs and be a part of a band. So in their classrooms, they become a part of a band and they're playing songs together. Many kids are learning multiple instruments. So not only are they learning the guitar or the ukulele, but they're learning um, keys. There's a, always a line of kids trying to get on the drum kit because they all want to be drummers. <laughs> Until they realize how hard it is to carry that gear to a gig. Yeah. They're yeah. like, this is great. Yeah. I carry my guitar with me and the drummer's like, this isn't fun anymore. But everybody it is wants rough. to be the cool drummer. Well, it's fun to bang on stuff for sure. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I sympathize with what you had to deal with growing up, Janice. Because uh, I, 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 too, learned guitar through classical guitar. That was like my first guitar, too. And that's like the worst way to get kids into guitar. Because, look, no hate on classical guitar, but I'm about to hate on classical guitar. It is the least <laughs> cool version of guitar and the reason why kids want to learn guitar is to be cool electric guitars or like steel string acoustic guitars like don't get kids started on the guitar that where you're playing vivaldi that's not going to make you any friends like we should be getting kids involved if you're going to expose kids to guitars electric guitars steel strings so they can sit around the campfire with their friends and strum stuff get them to fall in love with music see music will's got it right Absolutely. Yeah, no. And, and what we're finding with the kids, especially now, you know, it goes beyond helping their academic performance. These kids are looking for some way to express themselves. You know, I can walk into a classroom and talk to kids, whether they're in second grade or in high school. And the first thing that they'll say is, music is the thing that gets me to school. Music is what lets me you know, be creative. It helps me just deal with life. You know, they're all dealing with stress and anxiety and depression. Um, so many kids feel like they don't have a sense of belonging. They don't have their tribe. And when they're in our program and they're learning music and they're with their classmates or they're forming their own bands, they finally have their community. They found their tribe. And it's incredible the talent, you know, that, that these kids have. Whether they're going to become a musician down the road or not is really not the point. Our goal is to give them this tool to express themselves 
and then they can become they can become lifelong music makers so that music so it's not like somebody like me where oh my gosh i hated my lessons and then i dropped it they're going to take this this skill and this tool and carry it into their adulthood we're here with Janice Palazzotto. She's the interim CEO of Music Will. You can find out more about her work by visiting musicwill.org. I'd love to now engage with Janice on the subject of social entrepreneurship in music generally. Because you're hearing a lot in the news about musicians that are taking these really big swings in terms of charity and giving back and just you know, being overall good humans. I think of like Taylor Swift on her most recent tour, writing big checks, like $50,000 checks to every single one of the truck drivers that's involved with their tour, or like all the, the infinite number of artists that run their own charities or are really involved in social causes. So I'd love to ask somebody like you who's in this social entrepreneurship business, who are the musicians out there that you see doing social causes or social entrepreneurship that you think, that you think are doing a really great job with it? Wow, that's a that's a big question because there's so many of them out there. And Taylor Swift, she's the goddess of all of them. I mean, it's incredible what she does, not just for the the crew and the, and the people on her on her tour, um, but she does so much stuff behind the scenes that nobody even knows about. I mean, she just I think it was just announced that they she wrote a check to support the victims of the the tornado in Tennessee. Um, but we also do a lot of work with artists. Um, we're just coming off a, a three-city tour, so to speak, with Tom Morello, uh, Rage Against the Machine. Um, we honored him back in, in uh, May at our annual benefit in Los Angeles. And as part of the honor, um, what we do is we expand our program into 20 schools in the name of the artist. So for Tom, who is just... You know, he's just one of the most incredible human beings that we've ever met. He's a oh. super talented artist, but he is so passionate about human rights and about just people, you know, and I think we see him all over, it's, whether it's through his lyrics or through the stands that he takes. And, you know, he's out on picket lines with the Writers Guild or with the artists, you know, I mean, he is out there and present. Um, but as part of his honor, we, he selected schools in Los Angeles, one in Harlem, and one in Marseilles, Illinois. L.A., because this is where he lives now. Um, and so we expanded programs here. We did a class, or we did a school visit with him in Van Nuys High School, um, where he came out. He, um, we did some Q&A. He, he took questions from the kids. He performed. He had the kids all come up on stage with him, and they're jumping up and down. He <laughs> loves that connection with, with the with people, right? And he's he's not afraid to be right in there in the middle of these kids, and and it's it's crazy. And then we went to Harlem because he was born about a mile from the school that we were at. Same thing. This these were middle school kids. Um, and it doesn't even matter the age of the kid. He is just so um, available and he's so um, he's so intrigued. He really wants to get to know the kids. So same thing, school assembly, middle school kids, kids got up and told, told him what music meant to them. We did some Q&A. Um, he got up, he performed This Land Is Your Land again, invited all the kids to come back up on stage. They're jumping up and down. And at the end, this one little boy came up to him and he said, I have a song. Can I perform? 
And, and Tom's like, yeah, sure. And this is this little kid who's, you know, I think he was maybe fifth grade. So we get all the kids back to their seat. This little boy's up there and um, he said he, he, he made up a song and he was in the back. He was four minutes singing it to himself. And he said, I really want to share it with everybody. So he starts out kind of quiet and shy and, and Tom's there playing the drums and he, it turns into just this freestyle rap song. And it, and it was just, you know, I, I, he, and it was all centered around, I love playing with my cousins and my brother. And that was kind of the, 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 the repeat. We had all the kids in the audience starting to sing the song with him. <sighs> and it was just one of those moments where first this kid had the, had the, the was brave enough to come up and say, I wanna do this. And for Tom to be so gracious and say, yeah, of course, let's get you on the mic. Let's do this. And then for, for, the, for the boy to just go on and then become so comfortable, a lot of it is because of Tom's encouragement and kind of, you know, egging him on. And it just, it brought the house down. It was, it was incredible. But that's the spirit of Tom Morello. Um, so that was Harlem. And then we ended his tour in Marseilles, Illinois, which is about two hours south of Chicago. And this is this was a very meaningful place for him because this is where his mom was raised. His mom has just celebrated her 100th birthday. Um, and Tom spent a lot of time there as a child because that's where the family is from. Yeah, there you go. And um, it's an old coal mining town. So it's a very, you know, it's, I think it, there's high poverty. Um, so this was the town he wanted to support. We are at Marseille's Elementary School. Um, it used to be a high school. It's the school his mom attended as a student. We're in the gym and he said, oh my God, I know my mom is playing basketball in this gym. And it was the school where she ended up becoming a teacher and teaching high school kids. So for him, it was full circle to be able to come back to, you know, his childhood area where his mom grew up and to be able to um, not only be with the kids and perform, but each, at each of our stops, he unveiled a big donation of instruments. And so it was just a really special, very, really special time. And again, he's just um, an incredible human being. And um, it, it was just, it was such a treat, not just for us, but for all the kids throughout the country. I'll let you get in with the next question here, Lauren, but I just need to quickly mention that uh, it makes me very happy to know that Tom Morello is yeah. actually a good person. Right. You never know with these celebrities if it's like, oh no, he just he just puts on a front, but he's actually like a real jerk behind the scenes. Nope, he's as wonderful as I thought he was. Good, that makes me happy. Go ahead, Lauren. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, I I can't think of anything to ask offhand other than like I was about to be like, are you trying to get me to wrap up already? I want the I could ask you the last question. No, 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 no. Of course not. No, I, I, I got so much more for Janice for sure. <laughs> So I was looking at radio time. I was like, "Oh no!" No, no, we're we're still great for radio. We got plenty of time, and I want to. I, I let me ask you this, uh, Janice, because I want to now kind of leverage not just your experience with music, Will, but just your overall experience in social entrepreneurship, and use it to give some advice to our creators out there for for the viewers and listeners who are creative professionals 
who are inspired as as Lauren and I both are by that story of Tom Morello and want to kind of do the kind of work that Tom Morello does. Do you have any advice for creators on how to get into social causes, on how to flex those social entrepreneurship muscles? If, if creators were to approach you and say, how do I get more involved in my community? How do I get more involved with the things that I care about as a musician or as a creative professional? What advice might you give them? Oh gosh, there's there's so many ways creative creative folks or musicians can get involved with us. Um, you know, it can be something as incredible as what we did with Tom Morello, but really on um, providing opportunities for for artists to go into classrooms and talk to kids, particularly middle school and high school kids. You know, when you get a kid um, super interested in in music or the creative space. So many of the, the students that we work with, because many of them come from, you know, underserved communities, um, they just don't, they don't have the, the resources to know that there's so much more that they could do outside of just playing music. So for example, just the music industry alone, you know, there are so many jobs that, that kids could um, get involved in that don't necessarily even need a, a college degree, right? There's a lot of trades within the within the industry. Whether you're on tour and you're part of the the, the tour, you're you're on crew, you're you know all the way to being an engineer, a sound engineer, a lighting engineer, or behind the scenes in the business side where you can do A and R or finance or you know, there's so many tracks that uh, a student can take just to stay in the music industry, and they don't even know what those opportunities look like. And so that's one of the things that we hear from teachers, particularly in the upper grades, is help our kids understand that there are so many career paths that they can take, that just being a musician is one little tiny piece of of the industry because surrounding that musician are all of these other kinds of career paths that kids can take. And like I said, and they don't necessarily need a college degree to do that. Yeah. But the appreciation for music that you guys seem to instill into them is valuable in all of those other pieces. Like, sure, yeah, you can learn exactly. the technical side, but appreciating what it takes to hold an instrument and make music gives mm -hmm. you a respect for the other people you're working with. So yeah. I wouldn't be an entertainment great. lawyer without the music education that I received growing up, like playing music with my friends, taking guitar classes and music theory classes in high school. You know, I knew I was never going to do be a professional musician, but those experiences instill within me a love of music and an appreciation of what musicians do that ultimately drove me toward my path of you know being a lawyer for them. Yeah, right. Yeah. Does Music Will have any initiatives within its program to try to steer kids toward those other careers outside of just playing music? I mean, is that is there are there ways that you help kind of cultivate those other paths as well? Yeah, we have been um, really working hard on cultivating and, and really growing our, uh, our partnership with other like-minded nonprofit organizations. So whether it's a, an organization like Music Forward that is used to be the House of Blues Foundation and is now kind of the philanthropic um, department or division of, of Live Nation. Um, they do a lot of career development and mentoring. They offer really great courses and workshops and 
and internship programs in the in the music industry. So we, rather than us recreating the wheel and um, you know taking taking our team down a path that they're just not familiar with, we're really looking at building coalitions or building partnerships with other organizations. Um, we're we're looking at partnerships with Save the Music, for example. Um, we work with a group called Notes for Notes, who builds uh, recording studios in boys and girls clubs, and which is a perfect kind of thing for us because their program is really more of an after-school program, and it sits dark during the day. So what they've said is, use our studios. If you can get your kids into our studios, we'll bring our producers in, and the kids can have an experience of being in a recording studio. So we just did one with them in, in New York City, where we brought some kids out and they had a, a day to, you know, record a song and then learn the whole process of recording and mixing and sound editing and all of that. Um, so, so we do that. We really look to collaborate with like-minded organizations, not just in the music ed space, we're doing something with the Cal Ripken Senior Foundation, um, thanks to the support of a corporate partner that supports both of us, where they have a STEM program that they have been implementing across the country. We're putting our music program into their STEM program to create a STEAM program. Right. And we're we're looking to to partner to pilot that first one somewhere here in Los Angeles uh, in spring of next year. Love it. Love the synergy. Our guest has been Janice Palazzotto, the interim CEO of the music education nonprofit Music Will. You can find out more about our awesome guest's work by visiting musicwill.org. Janice, this has been a treat among treats. I've really enjoyed going uh, on this journey with you. Before we let you go, though, we got one last question for you. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Yes. Um... Well, first, follow your passion. Really, you know, so many of us, so many kids, they they don't know what to pursue, right? And we always tell them to follow their passion, like lead with their heart, and and find a f- find people or or resources that can help educate them to take take that certain path. If there are independent creators out there who want to get more involved with us please reach out to us um, through our info at, at musicville.org. We would love to connect with you. We would love to talk to you. We would love to explore opportunities that support not only their career development, but ways in which we can really continue to spread the love of, and power of music to, to more, more people. Our thanks to our guest this week, Janice Palazzotto. Thanks to you as well, producer Lauren and So much thanks to all of our viewers and listeners for hanging out with us this week on Break the Business. We'll see you next week. 